set up at home so apologies for that folks um but yeah hello tennessee valley this is the valley labor reports my name is jacob morrison my co-host and fellow agitator adam keller is out of town this weekend but ben job is taking his place in the studio thank you ben yes thanks we are still including me (laughs) yeah we are still broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today, Department of Education workers win big. Republicans are coming after your Social Security, even more child labor in Alabama. All that and more on today's program. If you want to be part of the show today, we've got a phone number. The line is still open. You can call or text 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also leave a voicemail throughout the week. If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap here on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us anywhere you find anything online. We are now streaming on Twitch, so you can find us there now. We're on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, all at The Valley Labor Report. Just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. So if you want to become a sustaining member of the program, make a one-time donation or buy our stickers, then you can go to our website. That's tvlr.fm, tvlr.fm slash store, and tvlr.fm slash donate. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash Report. And uh, if you're a member of a union, definitely think about getting your local to sponsor the show. That will really help us out. Uh, We're always, you know, some locals are falling on and falling off. So uh, the more folks that we get on, the more stability and sustainability that we will have. And um, the more reliably we'll be able to bring you the Valley Labor Report every week. And with that, let's go ahead and jump into our first segment today. That's going to be Last Week in Southern Labor. That is a segment that we do every week, mostly where we tell you what happened in the labor movement in the South. We pull the information from Jonah Furman's newsletter, Who Gets the Bird, which compiles all this information for the entire United States. So if you want to see what's going on outside of the South, then subscribe to his newsletter. That's whogetsthebird.substack.com. And with that, let's go ahead and jump into new organizing through December the 11th. 
150 workers who do HVAC manufacturing for Seasons 4 in Douglasville, Georgia, are organizing with UA Local 72. 104 drivers for Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits in Farmers Branch, Texas, are organizing with Teamsters Local 745. 80 Starbucks workers at four stores, including in Flower Mound, Texas, are joining the Starbucks Workers United movement. 80, wor 80 warehouse workers for wood products manufacturer Patrick Industries in Decatur, Alabama, are organizing with RWDSU. Shout out to any of those hey. folks who may be hearing us live on the radio right now. Uh, definitely feel free to call in. 29 dancers at the Texas Ballet Theater in Fort Worth, Texas, are organizing with AGMA, as are 19 more dancers at Ballet Memphis. 12 more school bus drivers in Amarillo, Texas, for the DS bus lines, are joining Teamsters Local 577. And 10 drivers for Maytag Aircraft in Fort Stewart, Georgia, are joining AFGE Local 1922. In uh, we had one big win, which involved 349 workers involved in the PGA Tour telecasting, which is based in St. Augustine, Florida. They voted 135 to 52 uh, to join the IBEW. <clears throat> in strikes and bargaining, Marty Walsh is now apparently stepping in to try to resolve the 200-day 1,000-member UAW Local 807 and 180 Case New Holland strike in Burlington, Iowa, and uh, Racine, Wisconsin. But Warrior Matt UMWA strikers in Brookwood, Alabama, have been out three times as long with no end in sight. In rural Sampson County, North Carolina, school bus drivers called out in protest after teachers, but no other staff got raises. We'd love to see that. Um, teachers in St. John's County, Florida, went red for Ed at a school board meeting after having rejected a $1,200 raise. The current average salary is under $47,000. Spirit Airlines matched Delta's 34% wage offer to the Airline Pilots Association. That's pretty, uh, that, that's pretty good. The United Airlines CEO tried to speak to some picketing pilots and was only able to see a wall of their backs. We love to see that solidarity. In politics and legislation, the, railroad, uh, the railroaders' fight for paid sick days is not over yet, as dozens of members of Congress, led by Bernie Sanders and Jamal Bowman, push for Biden to take executive action to grant seven paid sick days to railroad workers under an executive order covering federal contractors from 2015 that Obama created to exempt rail carriers. In the meantime, SMART and BLET conducted a dozen or so rallies across the country this past Tuesday, which are likely to be geared towards winning this executive order. Uh, the Teamsters won a huge pension victory this week with the Biden administration announcing $36 billion to avert pension cuts for 350,000 Teamsters under the failing Central States Pension Fund. Organizing against these pension cuts were part of the big grassroots movement that groups like Teamsters for a Democratic Union have built off of, uh, off of over the past decade, often at odds, not just with the companies and the federal government, but union leadership as well. 
probably not a coincidence that a week after shoving a contract down the throat of some 30,000 Teamsters, Biden moves money around to make good by the union. And finally, in internal union politics, Starbucks Workers United turned a year old today with Oh, uh, with nearly 300 union stores and over 7,000 union baristas. And with that, let's go ahead and take our first break. On the other side, we're going to be talking to Kathy McQuiston. She is the Deputy General Counsel for the American Federation of Government Employees, and she's going to be talking to us about a settlement that the union has won from the Department of Education. Folks, stay tuned. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Energy Alabama is a locally operated and membership-based nonprofit organization focused on advancing Alabama's clean energy future through education and advocacy. Many people in charge of infrastructure and building decisions simply don't know about how viable clean and renewable energy is. To that end, Energy Alabama has provided instruction to more than thousands of adults and tens of thousands of K-12 students across the state. We're working hard to build careers in clean energy and help everyday Alabamians save money on their utility bills. Learn more about our work and how you can join us at energyalabama.org. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. 
Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. And you are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller, but he is out of town. Ben Job is filling in for him. And I am broadcasting from home because I had COVID last week. So we are just all sorts of not normal this week, but we appreciate your uh, time and attention and patience. If you've got anything to add to the program, you can give us a call or send us a text. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. It is 844-899-8857. We appreciate your contributions in the Facebook and the YouTube chat. Um, and I did see the uh, uh, that stuff about the Kansas oil spill infinite content is saying in the YouTube chat. That is insane stuff. Uh, we are loving to see the double down uh, Starbucks strike it, across the country. Over a hundred different stores is my understanding. So um, really love to see stuff like that. Um, workers coming together. Um, great, great, great stuff. So our first guest this morning is going to be Kathy McQuiston. She is Deputy General Counsel for the American Federation of Government Employees. Uh, Kathy, thank you for taking the time to talk to us this morning. I really appreciate it. Yep. Good morning. Glad to be here. Good morning. Good morning. So uh, you're here to talk to us about a big win for workers at the Department of Education. But let's start with this. Um, can you tell us what the Department of Education does. Uh, why do we not want to, let's say, abolish it? <laughs> sure. Um, I mean, the Department of Education basically, as a broad matter, sets education policy for the U.S. Um, the two largest segments um, of employees are in federal student aid. And so obviously those folks deal with uh, loans for education and dealing with the contractors who service those student loans. And the other largest single group is the Office of Civil Rights. So those employees investigate and enforce civil rights, uh, Title IX, uh, those kind of things, uh, investigate individual schools or complaints. And uh, that sounds like Pretty important work, right? <laughs> we definitely need those to keep yeah. the education system running. Sure, absolutely. the The employees are very dedicated, um, especially in the Office of Civil Rights. You have a lot of attorneys who have left uh, law firms and private practice um, because they believe in the work uh, of enforcing mm. civil rights and protections for students. 
um, in our schools. So yes, it is very important. Um, and this, the uh, the lawsuit, the settlement that y'all were able to win, it stems from actions under uh, the Trump administration and Secretary of Education Betty DeVos. Um, but before we get to those specific actions, can you talk to us about some of the other ways that she, through her position as Secretary of Education, uh, kind of sabotaged public education? You know, that's all you, we spoke on the phone yesterday about how a lot of times uh, Republicans will come in and they will appoint people to head agencies that they literally want to destroy. They literally want to abolish these agencies. And, you know, she comes from a long line of school privatizers in Michigan. So what were some of the ways that she tried to sabotage public education from her position that aren't implicated in this settlement that you're going to be talking about shortly? Well, I think she, um, as you mentioned, she has a long, well-documented history of hating public education and of hating unions um, from her time uh, before she was confirmed as secretary. So she, um, you know, elevated from a policy standpoint, a lot of the religious education um, and elevating those policies that were important to her, uh, which, you know, overarching was the weakening of the department itself and its oversight authority, whether it was a civil rights or what have you. Um, and that was a key reason that she uh, tried to get rid of the union because the protections we had in our contract, as well as our employees were you know, as I mentioned earlier, very dedicated civil servants to the cause and believe in the right to public education in this country. And um, in order to expedite her policies, implementing her policies, she had to get rid of any barriers. And the one of the major barriers to her sort of master plan was to get rid of the union. And so that, that's a really good segue into what we're here to talk about today. Y'all were able to win a big settlement. And so a lot of that has to do with an imposed contract that, uh, you know, was in violation of the law. And um, that was really geared at destroying the union. So walk us through some of that backstory. Sure. So the agency and the union had been started contract negotiations in late 2017, early 2018. And um, the agency never actually met with us to bargain a single time. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and instead of March in 2018 said that the union was bargaining bad faith, even though, again, as I mentioned, we had never met and we had offered to meet, uh, we had dates scheduled and then the agency unilaterally canceled that bargaining they, they wrote what we refer to as an edict, uh, a totally management authored contract that essentially waived all of our statutory rights under labor law and imposed that contract. Um, and so that single incident led to a series of additional violations that occurred over the next approximately three years. Uh, and that's how we ended up with the, the litigation was surrounding that core issue. And uh, presumably they had some sort of, what, what was their reasoning 
for their saying that we have this ability to just impose unilaterally a contract on they, y'all. They claimed falsely uh, that it was the un- union was refusing to bargain with them, uh, which, wow. you know, when the Federal Labor Relations Authority is the uh, federal sector version of the NLRB, mm-hmm. and they investigated those allegations and found them to be without merit. Um, and so that's why they uh, issued complaints against the department. It, it was a total of 14 unfair labor practice complaints over the three-year period uh, surround it, starting with their unlawful imposition of the contract and uh, further unlawful actions taken after they, they were trying to rely on their unlawful contract uh, mm-hmm. to do things further on. So those were also found to be violations. And so let's talk about some of those things, because you mentioned that the um, the imposed contract at the Department of Education really served as a um, a, a, as a tool, as as a guidepost for the Trump administration, their the way that they acted towards federal employees across the rest of uh, across other agencies. And so, what were some of those? Uh, what were some of the violations that stemmed from that imposed contract, and how was that replicated across the federal government? Well. To be clear for everyone about what the the further actions were, so that contract was imposed in March of 2018, and then in May of 2018, just before Memorial Day weekend, the Trump administration issued a series of executive orders that applied government-wide, that severely limited the rights of unions in the federal government. Um, And so the contract, you know, being issued about two or three months right before that action took place government-wide, the actions the Department of Education took were actually more harsh than what ended up being imposed government-wide. You know, some examples of that is that they removed all of our employees who were members from dues deduction membership, union membership. Um, The federal government is an open shop, so no one has to belong to the union, but the agency over a two-year period systematically dropped people from their union membership through payroll deduction without their knowledge or consent. Um, They uh, expelled us from our union offices that we had bargained the right to have on agency facilities so that we had a location to meet with employees that we represent. Um, And they also revoked our, what's called official time, which is time under the federal labor law that unions have uh, to do representation work. And so they gave, the department gave our union representatives no time at all of any kind for years. Um, So this was a a strategic large scale plan to bust the union at the Department of Education to get us out of the way so DeVos could uh, have a clear path without objection or um, opposition to implementing her uh, anti-public education policies. Right, right. And so what are the ways that these uh, these things that were taken from from workers and, and, you know, from the union, what are the ways that that actually helps the agency serve, um, helps the agency execute its mission, right? Because the... Um, 
one of the stations that we're on is a conservative radio station. And so there is, uh, among some of our audience, there's a certain amount of anti-union, <clears throat> anti-government inclination. And so when they're hearing, <clears throat> I, I can just hear some objections from folks in the audience thinking that the ability for union uh, or for workers to represent each other in disputes with management, uh, that's just something in the way of the agency executing its mission. You know, all of these things that they got rid of are just roadblocks that are, you know, that, but, but actually, you know, it's our view that having these things does actually help the agency execute its mission and serve the people of the United States. And so walk us through why not only would workers at the Department of Education not want these things removed, but why would it be that, uh, you know, just a random citizen in the United States that relies on the Department of Education for, for this or that thing, um, <clears throat> why would it be that, that they would want a functioning and active and powerful union for the workers there? Well, I, I think as a, as a general matter, all the union is, is the voice of the workers. It's not a, a third party entity, right? Um, the, the leadership, it's a democratic organization. The leadership of the union is elected from among the workers at the Department of Education. And so they, these are the people that know what's going on on the ground. Uh, whereas higher level people, Betsy DeVos and people like that sitting in Washington don't necessarily know because the Department of Education actually has offices uh, across the country. So not everyone is sitting mm. in Washington, they're sitting in Dallas or Atlanta or uh, Denver, Chicago, places like that, uh, doing this work. And I think that, again, I mentioned part of their mission is a civil rights mission. Um, it's protecting the rights of students. And, and those, from the conservative angle, those rights can include, for example, religious expression and Mm. Um, prohibitions on expressions of, of religious expression and discriminate, not being able to discriminate against people for those um, expressions. And also for, you know, student loans don't have political lines that I'm aware of, certainly. And mm. so, especially as this administration works to forgive a lot of the loans, um, if that's able to move forward, I mean, that's a huge undertaking, a lot of uh, behind the scenes things that have to go on and we want it to go smoothly and we want it to go well and if if whatever's happens is allowed to go forward then you want it to be smooth and you want it done right and the way to do that is to hear directly from the workers about what that'll take the union isn't just necessarily about disputes with management it's also about it, the federal government has a long history of what's called labor management partnership Mm -hmm. where uh, the leaderships of the unions and worker representatives sit down with leadership in an agency and you know talk about issues, resolve them informally to avoid the kind of litigation we ended up here with in, in you know the last three years uh, until till the Biden administration came in. Right, right. Yes, that's that's definitely uh, that, that's definitely an important part. And 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 I think that in the federal government, the labor and management uh, cooperation 
it, it even makes a lot even more sense than it does in the private sector because the dynamics between labor and management, I think, really are uh, at least a little bit different in the federal government. Um, I, I remember when I was hired on, actually, uh, part of my hiring panel was uh, was also coworkers. It wasn't just management that interviewed me; it was other it was other coworkers, and that's something that uh, that I would like to actually formalize in our contract. I think that's just something that that has come up over the years at my agency, uh, but I'd really like the next time we sit down and, and negotiate our contract to get that formalized, because I think that that's a really cool thing uh, to, for the workers to be able to be involved in the bringing on of new employees. Um, and so this, this settlement, what is it? And, um, and how is that going to help the workers at the Department of Education moving forward? Well, the settlement does a lot of things because there were a lot of cases involved. Um, <clears throat> Institutionally for the union, it reinstates us to the, the place we were entitled, you know, had bargained to be in uh, as far as reinstating our offices. It reinstates the employees to dues deduction. It pays us back the monies we're owed um, for the time. And given the number of employees and the amount of time, that money is over half a million dollars um, we're owed. Um, it also uh, requires bargaining over things that the agency had refused to bargain over. So telework, um, reorgan Betsy DeVos had done a number of reorganizations, which by law, the agency was required to bargain the impact and implementation of those reorganizations with us, which they refused to do during uh, DeVos's tenure. So they have to now bargain those with us because sometimes they put for example, uh, employees in new jobs that they don't have any training for, they don't have any background in, and you know, it's mm -hmm. sort of setting people up to fail. And, and the union, when it bargains, it, it calls for appropriate training and things like that to avoid those kind of problems for individual people. So there were some individual grievances um, against employees where they were denied leave and things that they were entitled to. So basically the settlement, which was very wide ranging, addressed sort of a, a host of issues um, that I've just summarized. Right, right. Uh, Kathy, really appreciate uh, your time this morning. Is there anything else that you feel like uh, our audience ought to know about this issue? No, I think we've covered most of it. Appreciate the opportunity to discuss it and, and talk about Department of Education's work. Kathy McQuiston is Deputy General Counsel for the American Federation of Government Employees. They are the largest federal employee union representing over 700,000 federal employees across the United States. Kathy, thanks for taking the time to talk to us this morning. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, so we're going to go ahead and get right to our next, uh, our next guest then. Um, our next guest is going to be David Dayan. David Dayan is the executive editor at the American Prospect, um, and he is going to be talking to us about the Republicans taking control of the United States House of Representatives and what that's going to mean for working people in uh, across the United States. So, uh, so David, appreciate you taking the time to talk to us this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So, like I said, executive editor of the American Prospect, and you have been working on, um, you know, you, you've been working on what it's going to mean for 
the U.S. House to be controlled by Republicans. And that's going to happen here in just a couple of weeks. And so give us a top line of what that's going to mean for working people in your estimation. Right. Well, I mean, the main work product of this Republican Congress is probably going to be hundreds of investigations into the Biden administration. So we should we should be clear that legislation is probably not their their main goal. However, uh, there are going to be these moments where uh, a variety of bills sort of have to pass. You have to fund the government. Uh, you have to uh, make sure that the country can borrow to pay its bills. Um, and uh, in these moments are opportunities for Republicans to force through their ideological agenda. And they have met, not been shy about saying that that is what they want to do. Uh, they, they have said very specifically that in two instances, one, legislation to fund the government. It looks like we're going to get an omnibus bill that will take us to September of 2023. But after that, uh, that legislation could be held hostage by Republicans uh, for the purpose of making large budget cuts or uh, uh, tax cuts or whatever it is they want. And uh, the other piece of legislation is known as the debt limit. So uh, what this is, <clears throat> as I said, is um, the nation's uh, borrowing, uh, it has a set limit of a certain number. And uh, that number can be extended by Congress. Uh, if it isn't, then we default on our debt. And uh, obviously, uh, it's kind of a ridiculous uh, piece of legislation. We don't really need it. Uh, when we set budgets and when we pass legislation that spends money, uh, uh, we, we should essentially deem at that point that we're going to pay for that. Uh, however, th that, that's not what we do. We, we, we put together this thing called the debt limit. And uh, in the past, this has been used by Republicans as sort of a hostage-taking opportunity to cut spending, uh, and, and particularly with an eye on things like Social Security and Medicare. And uh, in the run-up to the new Republican Congress, uh, members all the way on up to Kevin McCarthy, who's likely to become speaker, is ha they have said, we are going to use the debt limit, which expires in the spring uh, of 2023. We are going to use that as leverage to get uh, cuts to Social Security and Medicare. I mean, they've said it out loud. They've, they've not been shy about this in any way. Cuts to Social Security and Medicare, um, like you said, they've said it out loud and, and they've made these commitments publicly. Um, before we get into that, what are some of the other things that they are looking at? Are there other programs that they have, um, you know, in the public taken aim at and made clear that these are going to be some of the things that's going to be on, um, you know, mm -hmm. they'll have their targets set on as bargaining chips whenever they have this leverage come, you know, September yeah. 2023 for the budget or spring of 2023 for the debt ceiling? Yeah, I think the big one is uh, the money that was given in the Inflation Reduction Act to the IRS. So in mm -hmm. the Inflation Reduction Act, there was $80 billion that was earmarked to the IRS. The IRS has been gutted 
over the last couple decades, uh, mostly under Republican control of Congress, uh, to the point that they can't do basic customer service anymore. I mean, you can't get a human being on the phone at the IRS, for example. Um, and uh, audits of wealthy people have essentially gone by the wayside at the IRS. Um, wealthy people, corporations, uh, th those audits almost don't happen anymore. And uh, this money was intended to ensure that that tax that is owed is collected and that people have a half decent experience dealing with the tax system. And uh, that has been targeted heavily by uh, Republicans, both in the election and, and since the election. Uh, so we're definitely going to see efforts uh, to use that leverage to roll back all of that money uh, from the IRS. Well, now, I don't understand why they would want to take money from the IRS, because I thought they liked law enforcement. Um, that was right. The tax, the tax police are, are definitely not being funded <laughs> uh, under a Republican government, uh, nor are the white collar police. Right. I mean, mm. uh, we, we, we don't see a lot of money put to corporate crime either. Well, and, and you know, that, that, that's something that we, that we talk about quite a lot on, on the program is that any time there's a law or a, or a quote-unquote law enforcement agency, which if you wanted to you know, stress the term, the IRS really is a law enforcement agency, right? Yeah. Uh, anytime there's a quote-unquote law enforcement agency like the IRS or like OSHA, like the NLRB, like MSHA, mm -hmm. all of these programs that really are, in a certain sense, law enforcement, anytime that those affect, anytime that those help working people or target bosses and rich people, the Republicans are against law enforcement. And, and by the way, uh, I don't think, I, I believe the number is that the, the NLRB has been operating under the same budget for the last 13 years. Yes. <laughs> uh, they have not gotten uh, any kind of raise, even though the population has grown and inflation has grown. Um, uh, similar with, uh, you know, budgets like the SEC um, and and uh, some of the other ones you were talking about, OSHA. I mean, I think the, 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 the standard is that OSHA can only, uh, under its current budget, can only monitor a workplace something like every 70 years. I mean, like, like that's how... Uh, meager wow. a budget uh, that OSHA has. So uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is the kinds of things that historically Republicans don't want to fund. And they're going to have that opportunity to look at uh, domestic spending in that fashion and with an eye towards cutting back uh, whatever gains were made in the last two years. Uh, but of course, the military budget is a magic budget that doesn't have mm. to be cut in any way. Uh, we have seen over the last two years uh, the the budget requests uh, for from the president on the military be exceeded uh, by billions and billions of dollars, mostly because Republicans in the Senate, which obviously in a 60 vote environment, you need Republicans in the Senate. They, they have forced uh, that those those numbers up and up. And I can uh, that's only going to continue pretty soon. We're going to have right. a trillion dollar annual military budget, which is just incredible. And and it's amazing how disconnected the rhetoric is on on that issue, especially in particular, because the NDAA was I, I believe it was just passed or it was just passed yeah. in one of the houses. And just passed. 
yeah, and like like you said, higher than Biden requested. Uh, you know, tens By about of billion, forty-five billion, I believe, was yeah. uh, the number that was higher. Tens of billions of dollars more than it was last year, and just last week we had Tommy Tupperville uh, going on the right-wing radio circuit talking about how weak Biden is on the on the military and how we need to strengthen the military and how this budget isn't going to be enough for them or whatever. And it's just it's amazing. It really is amazing how uh, you and and contrasting that with these other agencies like the IRS, like OSHA, like MSHA, like the NLRB, all of these things that need funding. And how there's never, sorry, I had COVID last week. That's why I'm broadcasting from home. Uh, but <laughs> why there's never enough for those agencies. But there's similarly, it's, uh, you know, there, there's never enough money to actually give those agencies. But no matter how much money we give to the military, it's never enough. Uh, uh, there, there, there's always more to be given to them. And, and what's the rhetoric? from uh, particularly from Republicans is that we have runaway spending in Washington, mm -hmm. that there's this runaway bureaucracy, that, that that these agencies aren't aren't spending effectively. There's all kinds of waste for abuse. And yet uh, the, the the budgets that these agencies are forced to, to do their work, their very expansive mission under uh, pale in comparison to uh, the sprawling nature of, of the military industrial complex. It's just, it's, it's really incredible. Absolutely. And so the, we're seeing all this coming down the pike, you know, I, I know that you're like, you're like a journalist and, and this is really your beat, but I mean, somebody mm -hmm. even like a layman like me down here mm -hmm. in Alabama don't have like a fancy professional media gig, right? I can see this coming down the pike. So do the Democrats see this? Uh, <laughs> I mean, there was an opportunity uh, in this lame duck session, when, which is the last chance for Democrats who hold a majority in both houses of Congress to, to do something, particularly about the debt limit. So um, a, a, as you remember, they, they passed the American Rescue Plan passed the Inflation Reduction Act with just Democrats, right? That was, mm. they used this thing called reconciliation, uh, which is sort of an end around the filibuster. And they used that to, uh, you know, pass uh, a bunch of tax credits for clean energy, uh, this change to uh, uh, the, the system for pharmaceuticals, what that is going to actually bargain for prescription drug prices, all of those things, the money for the IRS, all of that was done just with Democrats on a party line vote. Uh, they could have done the same thing to raise the debt limit. Uh, the debt limit has been used before in this reconciliation process. Uh, it would have taken a little bit of time on the Senate floor, but that what they could have done is raise it to a number that was so big that we would never hear about it again <laughs> and would never threaten the full faith and threat at the credit of the U.S. government in a hostage taking situation, essentially, where Republicans say we're not going to we're going to default on the national debt if you don't uh, you know, make these changes that we want. Uh, we could have ended that. We could have ended that uh, essentially forever. We could have raised the right. debt limit to one eleventy billion dollars. We, we, we could have just made it never a problem again. And uh, there was just no urgency to do that, even though Republicans were saying very openly, 
this is what we're going to do. We, we like having this debt limit because we're going to use it to get our priorities done, even though we don't control the presidency, even though we don't control the Senate. So uh, I think this was a huge missed opportunity. Democrats are sleepwalking into a crisis that we're going to see at the beginning of next year. And uh, Democrats are pretty happy now. They feel like they had a midterm that was, you know, not not as bad as they thought uh, going into it. They can mm -hmm. they kept the Senate. They increased their numbers in the Senate. They 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 won some things at the state level. Uh, the, the the House is very evenly divided. Um, but now we're going to have this this impasse uh, next year. And and mark my words, there there this is going to go down to the eleventh hour before they come up with a solution. Now, in the past, uh, Republicans have had, a, a, you know, because of the, the filibuster, they've had a way to uh, do this before. Uh, it's sometimes it's worked out. Sometimes it's it's gone down to the wire. And, and, and uh, in 2011, it led to something called sequestration, which cut those discretionary budgets even further, uh, just mass indiscriminate cuts to uh, various things like food safety and, and, and worker safety, workplace conditions, uh, all of those kinds of things, inspections were, uh, were cut in, in after 2011. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I don't wanna see that happen again, but, but that is the road that we're heading down. I, I just don't understand why, why is it that they, what is their reasoning for not doing something about the debt limit right now? The debt limit historically is uh, a vote that members of Congress don't want to take. And so they put it off and put it off until they have to. Um, if you're raising the debt limit to a big number, you know, you could get an ad that says uh, X senator voted to increase uh, the, the, this amount of borrowing to trillions of dollars. Uh, uh, what a horrible thing. Um, I've never seen that actually work. <laughs> in a political campaign like like right. but but that fear is palpable in Washington and uh you know it's a 50 vote uh majority in the Senate and so you have to get the likes of Kirsten Cinema and 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 Joe Manchin to agree to to do this maneuver to take this hostage taking out of the hands now obviously we saw Cinema move to become an independent uh during this time so uh you know they may not have had all 50 votes to move in that direction. But I don't even think they tried. I mean, it was right. just sort of an assumption that Manchin and Cinema wouldn't be for this rather than sitting them down with, uh, you know, someone uh, in the financial world who understands what a catastrophe it would be to default on the nation's debt and, and have them say, look, this is what's going to play out. And uh, you have an opportunity here to to not have this happen. And that's the responsible thing to do for the country, because this could be catastrophic from a from a, an economic standpoint. Uh, if you allow this default, the, the, the world relies on U.S. Treasury bonds as the most stable uh, instrument for for debt in in the entire world. And if that comes into question, it, it could spark a, a global catastrophe. Um, so so this this is a really dangerous game that Republicans are playing here and Democrats aren't paying enough attention to what the consequences could be. 
And it's a game that they're playing with the express purpose. They're using that as a bargaining chip expressly to hurt people. I mean, that's that, that's the that's the thing that, you know, either way, they are hurting people. Really, and it's really Social badly. Security and Medicare, right? Which right. are these, uh, you know, uh, the, the, these bedrock uh, systems uh, to give people a little bit of dignity in retirement and make <laughs> sure that they have the health care they need. Uh, Republicans never want to take these things head on, right? Mm. They, they, they clearly think that these are, are, are programs that need to be smaller, but they don't want to do it all on their own. When they had the control of the government, they didn't cut Social Security right. and Medicare. They want to get Democrats bought into it so they can right. deflect the political blame when, uh, you know, people, older people get their checks and they're smaller or, yeah. or they, they can't get enough uh, as much Medicare and they have to pay more out of pocket. Um, so that is the game here. They, they want to use the debt limit to create a bipartisan, you know, grand bargain whereby mm -hmm. uh, uh, these things are cut and nobody can blame anybody for it. So like that's part of the game here. So, David, they say that the things that they're going to say, uh, the, the reasoning is twofold. Is one on the Social Security and Medicare front, just just as a silo they're, they're They would say these programs are going bankrupt. Let's let's tackle that. Right. These programs are going right. bankrupt. Uh, they're they're going to go bankrupt in X number of years. What does that what does that mean when they say <laughs> these programs are going to go bankrupt? Right. So, I mean, we know how Social Security and Medicare work. We pay workers pay into a fund that pays for the retirement uh, uh, checks to go out for others. Essentially, you paid into this your entire life and then you're entitled to get uh, these benefits after uh, you retire. So uh, that trust fund uh, has gone up and down over the years. Um, we are in a situation where uh, there are more retirees relative to workers, and those uh, programs are, are set to be in a position where that, that trust fund will be depleted. However, uh, Social Security, because of the paying in and going out, is set up for, uh, uh, to pay benefits, some level of benefits, forever, uh, not, maybe not at 100%. But there are very easy ways to deal with the gap, the, the long run gap in Social Security. The biggest way is the fact that uh, only a certain percentage uh, of people's income up to a certain point, if you make over $160,000 a year, that dollar over 160000 it's something like that. I don't know the exact number, but over 160000 your uh, Social Security benefits aren't taxed, right? So there's this gap, and if you just scrap that cap, uh, uh, we'd be in a much better situation. Now, uh, in the past, uh, uh, about 90% of uh, all, uh, all, all payroll was covered by the Social Security benefits. It was, it was, it was taxed. Uh, now it's more like 80%. And that's because wow. of inequality. That's because of inequality, right? I mean, right. as incomes go higher and higher, uh, someone making one hundred and sixty thousand a year and LeBron James pay the same amount of Social Security tax, <laughs> because after one hundred and sixty, none of that gets taxed. And that's the problem: is that there are more and more people making large sums of money, and that's a larger segment of our overall 
payroll. And uh, so if you would just uh, figure out a way, uh, and it would be very easy, it's a one-line bill, to scrap that cap on Social mm. Security payroll taxes, then uh, this, this gap would magically go away. But of course, mm. that, you know, that would harm rich people, right? So that is not the way that we think about these things. Rather, it's talked about, oh, we got to cut benefits because we can't afford the benefits. Right. Uh, there are plenty of options that do involve no cuts to benefits that would get us into balance, uh, you know, actuarial balance on Social Security. And uh, similar things are true of Medicare, too. The biggest being the fact that we can we can negotiate on the price of prescription drugs mm. as we're going to do. But that's a little bit in the future. If we would just accelerate that, uh, uh, that would take down the amount of money that Medicare is paying out and thereby extend the life of the Medicare trust fund. The other thing that they use to attack these programs are, you know, they, they've got the one where, where these programs in and of, them, of themselves, they're going bankrupt. And I think that, you know, I think that we've gone through, you've gone through why that's really, really, really uh, disingenuous. But the other thing that they're going to say is that um, these programs as a part of the federal budget are deleterious to the United States. They're, they're just, right. we're spending too much money. We are too far in debt. Look, number big, that's bad. Um, why, uh, what would you well, say that, to that? I mean, that's an abstract way of saying what they don't want to say uh, fully, which is we think poor people should have uh, you know, a, a worse experience in their retirement. I mean, uh, that that's essentially what they're saying without saying it, right? Mm. I mean, uh, they just say, oh, we're spending too much. Well, what, what are your priorities? What should we be spending on? Uh, no, we're just spending too much. But, you know, it, it doesn't mean that the military gets less, doesn't mean that large tax deductions for things like mortgage interest, which go disproportionately to the wealthy, it doesn't mean we cut those back doesn't mean we cut other tax breaks back for corporations, for very rich people, uh, on, on estates, uh, in after you, you know, uh, inheritance taxes, things like that. It means that we cut these programs that are, that are generally for poor people. Um, programs for the poor or are poor programs is one uh, statement mm -hmm. that I've often seen made. You know, uh, the, these, the, the, the big lobbyists, out there are, are, are covering corporations. They're covering, uh, you know, very, very wealthy people. There are many lobbyists for the poor. And so those programs get targeted ultimately when you make an abstract argument like we're spending too much. Right, right. Um, somebody said in the chat, or we could simply revert back to 1950s levels of taxation. We could make America great again, sure. something like that. Uh <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, they um, want to bring back the 50s. Why not bring back the tax rates too? Right, right. Which were just to make it clear for the audience, something like 90% on the top marginal tax, the top marginal tax rate in the 50s. Top and marginal. 60s. Yeah, marginal yeah, yeah. tax rate. It doesn't mean 90% of all <laughs> your money is taken by the federal government. It means right. that over a certain level. Uh, we're we're going to uh, uh, you know tax at that rate, right, right. And so you know, 
Why are, uh, well, I, I guess you said it, why are Republicans so dead set on, you know, killing these programs? It's, it's because that, you know, that they want to make the experiences of the poor worse, uh, even though Social Security and Medicare really helps their key demographic more than anybody else. Is the I mean, I mean, the other the other part of that is that uh, Social Security and Medicare, which have been in place, Social Security since the 1930s, Medicare since the 1960s, are examples of government. Uh, uh, being very successful in achieving its goals of, uh, right. you know, broadly shared uh, prosperity, protecting the general welfare. Uh, Republicans look at successful programs and say, uh-oh, we don't want to give people too many ideas. We don't want right. to uh, let them know that maybe we could afford free college for people. We don't want to let them know that maybe we could, if we, if we do, uh, uh, Medicare and it's successful for the elderly that maybe we can do it for everybody. Uh, we don't, we don't want to get people comfortable with the idea that government is uh, a, a solution to people's problems. Uh, so we need to, we need to mess up those programs so that uh, it, 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 it furthers our argument that government is uh, not equipped to handle the challenges uh, of the 21st century. So I, I think there's a, a, an ideological aspect to this that uh, they don't want to see successful programs thrive. Mm -hmm. And we do have right. a caller on the line, just so you are aware. Yeah, well, let's go ahead and bring them on. All right, one second. And, you know, while we're waiting for that, while we're waiting for that caller, hey, uh, I David. Going, I was uh, oh, I commented on a channel or on a post on YouTube earlier and Talking about how there was a slow in production on Mazda. How there was a, a yeah, yeah, how there was a, a slowing production at Mazda? Well, I don't know if you can hear me or not, but there was a slow in production on Mazda and they were having a backup on everything that was going on. And uh, I'm down on the ground floor. I'm not going to say where I'm at, but uh, I would say that it all has to do with management, man. I've been in a, uh, the trucking industry for a long time and everything everything that's slowed down everything that's a problem it all has to do with management all we do is we come out and do our jobs and everybody else comes out and does their job and if there's anything that slows anything down management mm. yeah yeah well, those that, extra that, workers <laughs> that are just there <laughs> that aren't really that's, that's I don't know very interesting with. There, well, there, there. So, it, it, if if you got a minute, I'll I'll get a little uh I'll get a little nitty and gritty with you. Uh, there's so right now there's a there's a I'm gonna I'm gonna try to say this as uh as politically correct as I can. So one of our suppliers right now, they've got uh, guys over in their warehouse that are standing around for like four five hours at a time they're getting paid off a of toyota and it's because they don't have the racks to put all the all the equipment mm -hmm. on to, to fill up their uh trailers so we come over there and they say hey why are you bringing an empty trailer and we say well you know it's what they sent us with and then uh you know it's it's a whole it's a chain reaction right so they don't have the racks they can't put all their equipment on it well, we come over there. We don't have the racks. They can't send the rest of their stuff back to Japan. And it's like, it's just, it builds up, man. From what I understand, we've got around like, I don't know, probably like 10 trailers sitting over there. 
of racks that are not being unloaded because there's either A, a shortage of forklift drivers, B, mm. there's things being slowed down with uh, their computer systems, or there's uh, or there's something else like us drivers not having what we need, like check sheets, paperwork, uh, trailers not being in the yard anywhere to be found. Uh, <laughs> there's so much, uh, a truck being broke down. There's so much going on. It's insane, man. Sounds like a, a real supply chain disaster. Now, how long has this been going on? Did you hear that? Uh, how long has this been going on? So I would say uh, uh, I started around there around uh, beginning of summer, and this has mm -hmm. been this has been an ongoing issue since mm -hmm. around the beginning of summer. There's times where I came in there at 7 a.m. and I didn't work like actually run a truck, you know what I mean? Like I was sitting in the yard mm -hmm. just idling, wasting my time, wasting their time, just getting, I call it bullshit you, money, you know? Just <laughs> but wasting you're, away. You're an, and, uh, you're an employee, so you're like getting three money. hours. I come in at 7, then work till like you're 10 a.m. And it, it's gotten better. Like I'll say that it's gotten better because I work when I come in, but there's times where like I, you know, the, the, Yard passes aren't there. There's all this paperwork that it has to be there, and it's not there. There's there's racks that aren't ready. There's trailers that aren't ready. Like there's all this slowdown. And me, I just want to go fast. Get me done. Get me done. Let me get done. Go home. That's all I care about. I want to get done. Go mm -hmm. home. That's it. Mm -hmm. I want to do my job, run my routes, and go home. That's it. Mm -hmm. And there's all this riffraff. There's managers arguing. That's all. The managers, hell, they want to argue with us. They they hadn't if they hadn't got their fight out with each other, they just want to take it out on us truck drivers. And then nowadays, uh, the truck drivers, the, the some of their some of us have gotten kind of irritable with each other, and it all comes down to managers, man. I mean, we we know that you have to have peace to be able to pull all that freight around and not you know kill somebody. I mean, you get you get hot headed mm. and you're pulling. 80,000 pounds of freight, man, you know, uh, you, you can't do that. So it's gotten where it's like, we'll be kind of people be cutting people off in the yard and people, some of the, it just the camaraderie of truck driving isn't the same here as it is when I was out on the road. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Oh no, go ahead, David. Oh, I, I was just going to say that, uh, I mean, that that sounds like a bad situation uh, in where I'm at in California. If you look at the port truckers, they're, they're yeah, I can hear you. Uh, they're they're not even uh, set employees. So if they're sitting around, they're not getting paid as independent contractors. Mm. They don't get paid for the the can times you, when they're sitting waiting for things to unload or, uh, you're fine, or anything man. like that. Uh, yeah, I can hear you good now. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, it's it's you know what what you're talking about is a bad situation yeah, but uh, oh okay i'm sorry we're gonna uh ben tell the caller that we're gonna have to uh let him go we're having we're, we're... yeah yeah we're having a we're having trouble getting back to you but um if you have a comment or something for the caller i can get it through to him yeah we'll just we'll, just tell him we'll have to let him go and, and we'll have to tell him to yeah. call back yeah, thank you thank you for time. your call uh but uh we're yeah we're going to move on with our segment, but thank you for your input, my friend. 
Hey, yeah, I'm glad I could glad I could key you in. All yes, right. sir. Appreciate it. Have a good one, man. You too as well. Sorry about the tech difficulties there, David. We're uh, uh, the it was uh, weren't able to get our audio from the Zoom to the uh, to the right. person that called in. But that was that was a fellow that that actually commented on one of our um, on one of our shows uh, uh, segments about Mazda locally, and um, and so I'm glad that yeah, I'm that's that interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, long haul trucking is, uh, uh, you know, an industry that was deregulated in the 1980s and uh, has has, you know, we we heard during the pandemic, right? Oh, there's a trucker shortage. That That's that's the big problem. Uh, and it, it's not a trucker shortage. It's a shortage of decent paying jobs uh, in that industry. Yeah. Um, and we've written about that and, uh, it, it's, it's an ongoing problem. And of course now, uh, the trucking industry, we actually just had a story just last week, the, the trucking industry is ground zero for, for surveillance in this economy. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. they, they get in there, they have these electronic data logs, uh, ostensibly for safety reasons, but now it's a way for the boss to uh, monitor your every move in the truck. Um, and, you know, we've, we've heard situations where uh, the, the, the dispatch is telling the trucker, uh, get up and go and, 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 and get driving because you, you just finished your break. Uh, we know it because you, we, we see the data logs. You just finished your break two minutes ago, so you better get started and get, get driving. Uh, it is um, there's almost like a a, a panopticon of, uh, of 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 you know surveillance that's going on from the the, the headquarters to the truckers out in the field, and uh, it's 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 the beginning of something a little bit creepy in in our economy writ large. No kidding, no kidding. And so, you know, we'll wrap up the uh, with going yeah. back to Social Security and Medicare and, and the attacks that those are under. Mm-hmm. What are, you know, uh, I guess it's really difficult to to predict what's going to happen. But uh, I, what would be your predictions going into, you know, the the debt ceiling limit expiring in the spring, uh, the budget in the fall? Um how can Democrats stop these attacks on uh, either Social Security and Medicare and the benefits that those give to right. the elderly population or the entire global economy? You know, one of those is gonna, it looks like right. th- those are going to be under attack. How can Democrats I mean, stop them? The good news is, is that all of these things we're talking about that Republicans want to do are very unpopular. Right. And they don't want to be tagged as solely responsible for uh, for these things happening. They don't want to be the people who took away your Social Security, who took away your Medicare. Mm-hmm. They want to make it a grand bargain between Democrats and Republicans mm-hmm. so nobody's responsible. So if Democrats hold the line and force Republicans to be the ones to pull that trigger responsible you know, for a debt default, uh, somebody's going to blink. Right. Mm. And uh, and and it's possible it will be Republicans. I mean, the problem for Republicans in the House to manage this strategy is that they have a very thin majority. Mm. So they they might not even have majority support to do this kind of stuff because they're they're relying on some moderates, relative moderates. You know, I mean, we're talking about Republicans here, but um, relative moderates in places that Biden won 
uh, in places like New York and California, yeah, those hold the majority in their hands. And so it, it is going to be difficult for Republicans to sustain this, especially if Democrats are out there every day pounding this message that Republicans are the ones coming after your Social Security, coming after your Medicare, mm. and Republicans are the ones that are threatening to take down the global economy if we don't give them these things. So uh, there, there's there's going to be very tense negotiations and fights uh, around these little moments of leverage opportunities. And uh, Democrats are going to have to hold strong and, and, and make the message and, and put it out there in public of what's going on. Do Democrats have the fortitude to do that? I mean, we'll find out. <laughs> we'll find yeah. out. Uh, uh, President Biden has said, we're not touching Social Security. We're not touching Medicare. So he has said that publicly. Now, he could have secured that in the lame duck session uh, mm. by just taking the debt limit off the table. Um, but uh, I think Democrats think they can win this fight in the court of public opinion. Um, we'll see if they uh, can do it. David Dayan, executive editor at the American Prospect. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us this morning. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, so, yeah, like I said, we appreciate him taking the time to talk to us. Definitely check out the American Prospect. You can find it at uh, prospect.org. And folks, um, and, and, and caller, uh, definitely send us a text message. And Ben, if you could uh, jot down that person's phone number so that we can, uh, so that I can call him after the show. Uh, because uh, those problems definitely sound something, sound like something that, uh, uh, you know, that, could be organized around. So if you're interested in talking to the local Teamsters, uh, talking to the local machinist union, um, getting in touch with a local union, we can we can uh, uh, see about helping you um, helping you fix some of those issues here at Mazda and Huntsville. So we're going to take a break really quick. And on the other side, Adam has a message for us about a, a local educator. So uh, make sure you stay tuned, folks. We will be right back. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. Energy Alabama supports consumers and is a leader in advocating for them. We have been able to successfully fight off utility rate increases in the state, reduce fees for electric vehicles, increase electric vehicle infrastructure spending, and secured a $100 million refund by Alabama Power after the utility overcharged customers for fuel. To learn more about our work advocating for customers and join the fight, go to energyalabama.org. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or dsanorthalabama at gmail for more information. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at iamaw44.org. 
Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. Support for this program also comes from the Iron Workers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Iron Workers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. Alabama's only Union Talk radio show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host Adam Keller is out of town. I've got COVID, so I'm broadcasting at home. And Ben Job is holding down the fort back at the Spice Radio <laughs> studio in Huntsville, Alabama. In my lap, I have our foster dog. If anybody wants a, wants a cute little... Aww pity puppy you can dm the show <laughs> she's very good she's very docile as you can see i'm playing around with her face she's a good girl appreciate y'all hanging out with us this morning uh hanging out with us through our technical difficulties um Really enjoyed that conversation with David Day and, and again, very much recommend checking out the American 
prospect. Very good work they do over there. Oh, I think we actually have an OBS crash. I don't know what's going on here, but... Do what? Uh, It looks like we have an OBS crash. I can hear you. I'm not sure if we're going to the radio anymore. Let me try and restart the stream real quick. Because I don't think we are. I guess it cut off the radio. Can you still hear me okay? Yeah, I can still hear you. Oh, you can't hear me because of the freaking OBS. Hold on. Hold on just a sec. <clears throat> all right you probably can hear me now and we may be live again okay. OBS just had a uh, mild okay, yeah. uh, issue there yeah, looks like looks like we're back sorry about yeah that, look folks. yeah we're, we're good over here now okay sorry about the Appreciate downtime it. y'all yeah, so uh, definitely check out the American Prospect. They do really good work, really good reporting. Uh, appreciate y'all uh, sticking with us through the technical difficulties. And just once again, for that driver at Mazda here locally that called, uh, definitely um, reach out to the show and we can put you in touch with one of the local unions uh, if you'd like to begin organizing. Um yeah, infinite content streams acting up. Appreciate everybody hanging out with us in the chat. Champagne uh, Humanista says, wow, okay, loving the facial hair. Appreciate it, Champagne Humanista. Um, and uh, infinite content says, ironically, the minimum wage hasn't risen in the past 13 years either. Indeed, indeed. Um, so I mentioned on the other side of the break uh, before we left that Adam has... Uh, recorded a quick segment for us about a local educator who is uh, being forced into an early retirement if nothing happens. So Ben, let's play that from Adam really quick to let the folks know what's going on at uh, Lee High School, I believe, here in Huntsville. Yes, indeed. Here we go. Hello, everybody. I wanted to make folks aware of a situation involving a fellow worker here in Huntsville, in this case, a fantastic educator at Lee High School in Huntsville City. A local parent named Dave Anderson started a petition on change.org. I happened to see it this week and I wanted to pass it along to all of you guys so you could be aware. The petition states, quote, Michelle Sisson, the creative writing magnet instructor at Lee High School for 13 years, is facing the daunting decision of being forced to choose early retirement. To say Ms. Sisson has been an asset to this community is an understatement. She has produced more valedictorians in her magnet than any other magnet. She is the only nationally board certified teacher at Lee High School. And she also has her master's in instructional leadership. The petition then quotes one of Ms. Sisson's former students, Colby Meeks. Colby is not only an alumnus of Lee's Creative Writing Magnet Program, but is attending Harvard University, where they serve as the 2023 Poetry Editor for the Harvard Advocate. Colby states, Miss Sisson and the environment she cultivated and protected in the Creative Writing Magnet allowed me to learn to be a writer, yes, but also learn to be a leader and a mentor for those younger than myself. Her care in the moments I wanted to give up and her sharing in my pride when I felt like I was on top of the world are an undeniably huge factor in my getting to where I am today as an academic, as a poet, and as a person. 
It's quite the testimony from a former student. You see, Ms. Sisson takes great pride in the Creative Writing Magnet program. She took on the program in addition to her uh, English core classes. Juggling the commitments to both courses has been increasingly difficult. Quoting again from the petition, Ms. Sisson is the only magnet teacher at Lee High School who also teaches core classes. The other magnet teachers teach electives along with their magnet classes. Ms. Sisson has to teach four different creative writing magnet classes in one block with 21 students ranging from 9th through 12th grade. This situation effectively puts the creative writing magnet program into a schoolhouse type situation. The other magnet teachers who do not teach core classes have at least two blocks to teach their magnet students. So Huntsville City Schools is treating the creative writing magnet as an elective while Ms. Sisson's main job is English 9. Further intensifying the situation, Ms. Sisson has worked through cancer, COVID, and now Frederick's ataxia. She wants to and is fully capable to work through ataxia, but Huntsville City Schools is refusing to meet her ADA accommodations of smaller class sizes, ensuring the safety of her students and herself. Huntsville City Schools is refusing to address this issue, and it boils down to money. They are using state funds to pay Ms. Sisson's salary and treat her magnet class as an elective. So Huntsville City Schools has gotten a free magnet teacher out of her without any increase for 13 and a half years. Michelle Sisson is a fantastic teacher for the creative writing magnet. She continually changes and shapes student lives in so many ways. She's offered many solutions to the Huntsville City Schools that would benefit the students while making her classroom safe for all involved. Focusing on possibly teaching an elective for EL students whose needs are not currently being met at Lee High School. This would be a situation similar to her magnet colleagues in that EL could be her elective class commitment. Time is critically of the essence at this 11th hour. Ms. Sisson started the process of reaching out to numerous administrators in Huntsville City Schools and the Board of Education in October 2021. Concerned parents joined the effort in the fall of 2022 when it was clear Huntsville City Schools did not care to help Ms. Sisson. We have exhausted all available avenues and resources. The overwhelming lack of response and action from Huntsville City Schools administrators and Board of Education has brought this to critical mass for Ms. Sisson as she contemplates this difficult decision to retire before January 2023. Please sign this petition and email Huntsville City Schools Board of Education and superintendent at superintendent at hsv-k12.org. So that's the petition. And let me add that it's come to my attention that as Huntsville City Schools ignores this great teacher's reasonable request for accommodations, which would in fact just be to treat her similar to other magnet teachers, as the district ignores her request, as the district ignores parent and community outcry, they are at this very time adding yet another six-figure salary, big wig job to central office. That's right, folks. They're actually bringing back the chief of staff job, which was a do-nothing, hatchet man, bureaucrat type job created by Casey Wardensky and wisely phased out in 2017 by then superintendent Matt Aiken. He saw at the time it was a waste of money, uh, but apparently it's not anymore. 
this job will apparently have an upper salary range of $200,000. Now that's more than a lot of superintendents across the state of Alabama make. So you want me to believe you cannot accommodate a loyal, hardworking, dedicated educator in your school system, but you can afford another six-figure salary at Central Office. Seems pretty absurd to me. But of course, this isn't the first time. I can think of uh, plenty of instances where Central Office uh, jobs got some priority over the rank and file. I can remember an instance a couple years ago or a few years back now, uh, where a couple folks already making six figures were given five-figure raises. Meanwhile, I had multiple salary grievances waiting to be resolved. Sometimes when I think about the way folks with a little bit of power in that place have behaved over the years, it makes me sick to my stomach. Ms. Sisson, know that I and the Valley Labor Report stand in solidarity with you and your struggle. We urge all of our listeners to sign the petition, to email their Huntsville school board member, and to email Superintendent Christy Finley, whose email is superintendent at hsv-k12.org. Thanks and solidarity, y'all. Just an amazing display from the, uh, <clears throat> from the Huntsville City School Board. Um, Huntsville City uh, schools, just really, really amazing to be creating a six-figure salary job at the same time that they are refusing to give one teacher reasonable ADA accommodations. <clears throat> just really, really, really gross stuff. Um, but we're going to be wrapping up here on the radio. Uh, we're going to be going into overtime shortly where Adam has prepared several different segments for us. And I am also going to be hitting on uh, some late breaking news from yesterday about more child labor. I mean, the story just keeps getting worse. More child labor in Alabama. Previously, it was reported that uh, two, at least, at least two Hyundai suppliers were found to have been utilizing child labor. And now that number has risen up to four with six additional suppliers being investigated for potentially using child labor at their facilities. So um, this situation just continues to get worse. And the silence from the Alabama Attorney General continues to be deafening. Remember, we've been... Uh, chronicling the lack of action and the lack of interest from the Alabama Attorney General since this began, since the story broke, at least back in July. And still to this day, the Alabama Attorney General, the chief law enforcement officer in the state of Alabama, has not said anything publicly. About a minute and 30 left. Has not said anything publicly about children being employed in manufacturing environments in the state of Alabama. It's just, it's just absurd. It's just absurd. But like I said, we're going to be wrapping up um, and we're going to continue that conversation in overtime. Don't forget about our striking UMWA sisters and brothers in Brookwood. You can support them at paypal.me slash UMWA strike pantry. Obed Edom done up in jade like green waters their new album uh check out uh check out their new album on Bandcamp. obed edom is ben job's uh music project thank you uh, nice. 
Yeah, yeah. So definitely check that out. You can leave us a voicemail at 844-899-TVLR. You can support us or buy our merch on our website, tvlr.fm. Uh, become a patron at patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. And until, oh, and next week we are doing our first ever best of show. So uh, reminder folks, please do give us your ideas for best ofs. Um, submit it to us in an email, DM us on Facebook, Twitter, stuff like that. Uh, and with that, we'll see you pre-tape next week. Bye.